Well, good morning again. For those of you who are visiting, our senior pastors, Rob and Mary Beth Rucci, are out this Sunday on a long, long, overdue vacation. <laughs> they work very hard. They said to say hello and that they miss being with you. They look forward to being back next Sunday. Their absence has afforded me the high honor of being able to speak with you this morning, and I truly do consider it an honor. Before we go much further, I would like to begin with prayer. Let's bow our heads. Father, you are awesome. You are sovereign. You are mighty. And I thank you this morning that your purposes are prevailing across the landscape of our world. That although our times seem like they are in the midst of chaos and lawlessness, that in reality it's your purposes and intent which are being fulfilled in the most wonderful way. I ask that your spirit will work in the lives of each person here this morning. May you reveal your heart and your word in a way that only you can do. Holy Spirit, please speak to the innermost thoughts of each one here. In the strong and mighty name of Jesus, amen. By way of introduction to our main text this morning, I want to share with you two important truths or principles that I believe are key to this journey that we walk on this earth. The first principle is that there is a godly wisdom and operation that is diametrically opposed to the worldly wisdom that we're so inundated with on a daily basis. Whether you can perceive it or not, it's there. God is accomplishing his purposes through this wisdom just as he accomplished and orchestrated the arrival of his son for the salvation of our souls. This godly wisdom is right under our noses and yet if we don't tune into it, we'll miss it. It's the wisdom in the parable of the mustard seed that causes the mustard seed, which is the smallest seed in the garden, to grow and take over the garden to such an extent that even the birds can nest in its branches. In other words, this wisdom is the kingdom of God, and it's ever increasing toward a final consummation of all things. In fact, Paul makes reference to this godly wisdom in 1 Corinthians 1.21 and continuing in chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. He says, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed from the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. You see, this wisdom is characterized by being completely opposite to the world's wisdom. An example of this opposite nature of godly wisdom is found in Proverbs 11.24, where it says that there is one who gives freely, yet grows all the richer, and another who withholds and what he should give and only suffers want. This opposite nature or the world's wisdom is where one is encouraged to withhold that you can have more. In other words, the world says, hold on, gather, gain, and then you'll have more. But God says the opposite. This kind of wisdom is folly to the world. This godly wisdom will always confound the world's wisdom. It will never make sense to the world. And yet this is a wisdom that will bring to final consummation all of God's purposes and plans. You see, if we follow the world's wisdom, we cannot please God. We can't even find God through it. The world's wisdom puts enmity between us and God and actually leads us away from God. Why am I talking about this wisdom? I'm bringing this out to say that there is a natural direction or wisdom 
in this life that would point us to the things of the world and take our focus off the things of heaven. Our natural inclination is to look at and pursue what's right in front of us, the material world, which operates from a worldly wisdom. But the kingdom view is to see past this and walk this life with a spiritual perspective, with a godly wisdom. Not to the exclusion of the material, that would be Gnosticism, but only as a matter of priority. 1 John 2, 15-17 clearly reveals what the world's wisdom drives us to. It says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The world's wisdom will always be pulling us away from God. Pursuing the world's wisdom is like trying to paddle a boat in two currents going opposite directions. It's impossible. You will, you will destroy yourself and sink the boat in the process. The second principle is that there can be no compromise in walking as a disciple of Christ. No compromise. God tells us through the Apostle Paul that our life is no longer ours because we've been hidden with Christ. Do you understand that? It's no longer ours. I don't owe myself. I'm hidden with Christ. Jesus tells us that we must take up our cross and die daily as his disciples. There are many other references in Scripture that convey the same message. We are called to be all in. God calls for full-out devotion. There is no lukewarm path. In fact, Paul addresses this truth in 1 Corinthians 7, 29 through 35. Starting in verse 29, it says, This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown short. That sounds like today. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. I don't know that my wife would agree with that. <laughs> but he says it. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about the worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this to your own benefit, not to lay a restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. I want you to listen to the phrases and wording Paul uses in this text. He speaks of an appointed time has grown very short. I feel like that's where we're living now. And even back then, though, they expected the return of Christ any day. And how much more so now? He speaks about being anxious about worldly things. He speaks about interest being divided. And finally, he says he wants to secure their undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, Paul was not instructing us not to marry, and there's too much to delve into this now. My point in reading this passage is to show the urgency Paul had concerning the times they were living in and the response he was soliciting from the Corinthians. Paul was exhorting them from the perspective that Christ's return was imminent. With this in mind, you can sense the urgency of Paul's heart concerning the Corinthians prioritizing their devotion. 
to the Lord and not having their interests divided. He was concerned that whatever state they found themselves in, that they maintain an undivided devotion to the Lord. This is the topic of my sermon this morning. Our main text today is found in Matthew 6, 19 through 33. As we study this text, I want us to pay attention to how these two aforementioned truths or principles are interwoven throughout Jesus' message. As a brief background to this text, the scripture comes from a, a section of what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. In this passage, and in fact, beginning in chapter 5 of this text, Jesus is just beginning his earthly ministry after going through the testing in the wilderness. Straight away, he begins his ministry by declaring, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He then goes on to expound the reality of the discipleship lived in the presence and power of the kingdom of God, but within the everyday world. The words that Jesus spoke that day represented a profound shift from the teaching and practice of the spiritual leadership of the day. Jesus' words were calling his disciples away from earthly living and moving them towards kingdom living. He was dealing with the issues of their hearts and their motives. He was taking them from a focus on earthly pursuits and moving them towards a focus on heavenly pursuits. In fact, as you study his sermon, it becomes more and more clear that Jesus was saying that the kingdom of heaven is the kingdom that runs opposite to the world system. In other words, it's countercultural. Does this sound like two wisdoms discussed earlier? You see, we are living in an accelerated day and time in which the world's wisdom is trying to consume our attention and devotion. The world's wisdom tells us what we should care about, what makes us have value, what we should be worried about, such as terrorism or disease or famine, natural disasters, wars, you fill in the blanks. It tells us what we should run after, such as material wealth. And everything that is of importance in this world system is amplified through the media. It bombards us daily. All you have to do is turn on the TV for a short period of time and your mind will be overwhelmed with this thinking. We are made to think that running after these things is normal. We are made to think that our lives cannot exist without these things. This morning as we study this text, I want us to reflect on which wisdom we are following. I also want us to ask ourselves if we are walking in undivided devotion to the Lord. As we will see, the answers to these questions will be reflected in our priorities. The things that we place high value on. Ultimately, the things that compete for and consume our interest and devotion. But first, I want to define a term for you. This term is called litmus test. It means a decisively indicative test. And for those of you who maybe have had a chemistry course, this is a throwback to chemistry. I don't know if any of you have ever seen it, but a little litmus paper, and maybe I'm rebuilding my engineering mindset here. I don't know about you, but I like to have reference points in my life that despite how I perceive a certain situation, can always get me past the fog of my filters. All of us have filters that sometimes prevent us from seeing the reality of a given situation. Sometimes things really aren't as they seem. I like to joke with my wife about the fact that I know I naturally pull, the right, pull to the right, and this is an analogy to a steering system. So I know that I naturally pull to the right, but I need to steer to the left to stay straight. So if you know that you're already pulling to the right, you've got to steer to the left. And when you look at a situation, you say, well, 
this can't be what it seems because I know I pull to the right all the time. So this is a way to kind of keep me in focus. These same filters can prevent us from uh, noticing when we're steering off the path to the kingdom. So these same filters we walk in in our lives and in our personality. I often think of the verse found in Proverbs 14:12, where it says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. That's always confounded me. How could something seem right to us but in the end lead to death. And yet we know the heart is desperately wicked and can be deceitful. A litmus test can reveal the reality outside of our filter so that we can see the things as they truly are. We can use the idea of a litmus test to help us determine whether we are walking in an undivided devotion to the Lord. So let's begin with reading our text in Matthew 6, 19 through 21 to find our first litmus test. It says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart, your heart be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Our first litmus test is this. To maintain an undivided devotion to the Lord, we have to pay attention to what we treasure. First, I want to make a note that in the phrase lay up in Matthew 6, 19, Jesus is not saying that anything is wrong with being wise and storing up for future needs. In fact, this is encouraged throughout the scriptures. Jesus is merely making reference to the hoarding of treasures on earth. The Greek word for moth is seis. It means moth or clothes moth. And it comes from the eastern treasures uh, at that time, which consisted mostly of costly clothing. And they were liable to be consumed by moths when they were stored. Again, in James 5.2, we see similar reference to perishing riches. It says, your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Jesus is essentially pointing out how perishable these earthly treasures are. These treasures are vulnerable to the decay of the earth. These treasures are of the earth and, again, only have value in view of the world's wisdom. Guzik's commentary says, The issue isn't that money is intrinsically bad, but it is of no ultimate value either. If this is the case, then how can the disciple of Jesus have a dedication to continually expanding their earthly treasure? Jesus asserts that what we should do instead is to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven where it cannot be consumed by earthly decay and where thieves cannot break in and steal. To be sure, laying up for ourselves treasure in heaven can bring peace and enjoyment now to the extent that we are givers. But the ultimate enjoyment comes on the other side of eternity. The nature of the text here also informs us that what we treasure while on earth has an impact on the future in heaven. In other words, all that one does or gives for the kingdom of God will accrue to his or her eternal credit. Not even a cup of water given will lose its reward. And finally, in Matthew 6, 21, Jesus tells us why it's important not to lay up treasures on earth, but in heaven. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the key issue, because where our treasure is, that which we value most is where our heart will be. The Greek word for heart here is cardia. It denotes the center of all physical and spiritual life, and it means the soul or mind as it is the fountain and seat of our thoughts or passions or desires 
our appetites, affections, purposes, and endeavors. The principal concern of Jesus is seen in this, namely, where is your heart? So we have to ask ourselves, where are our hearts this morning? Where are our thoughts focusing? Where are our passions and desires leading us to? What drives our purpose on a daily basis? Paul also instructs, instructs us in Colossians 3, 2, that we are to set our minds on things above and not on things on the earth. Since Jesus is enthroned in heaven, our thoughts and hearts should be connected to heaven also. We should be enamored with the things of God. We should long to be with God. You may ask, is this heavenly treasure worth it? Let's see what Jesus tells us in Matthew 13, 44. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The answer to the prior question is yes, it is worth it. It is worth it. It's worth much more than anything we value in our lives. Nothing can compare to it. God may not ask us to give up everything, but if he does, are we willing to sell all and give all to gain this heavenly treasure? Are we willing to obey whatever he asks us? When our hearts are set on the right treasure, we are not so easily distracted. My prayer is that our hearts will be set on storing up treasures in heaven to the extent that we can walk in an undivided devotion to the Lord. Let's continue reading in Matthew 6, 22 through 24. It says, The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And in other translations, it says mammon. This brings us to our second litmus test. To maintain an undivided devotion, we have to understand where our focus on God is singular or clear. We have to understand whether our focus on God is singular and clear. The eye is used here as a metaphor. The bodily eye is taken as a symbol of the outlooking power of the soul. For example, as by the eye, the physical body learns its environment and naturally, almost automatically, tends to accommodate itself to it. So it is with the gaze of the soul. If our soul's outward gaze is on the things of this world, the soul perceives and tends to accommodate itself to the things of the world. Think about that. If our soul is looking to the things of heaven, it perceives and tends to accommodate itself to the things in heaven. The Greek word for healthy here is haplous. It means clear, simple, single, sound, without folds or undivided. So in essence, verse 22 is saying that if our eye is single and clear in focus, not looking two different ways, then the body receives the proper light that it should receive. So it is with the gaze of the soul and its effect on the inner man. I'm reminded of Psalms 36.9 where the psalmist proclaims, In your light do we see light. We can only be fully illuminated if we are daily in his presence, seeing his light. Continuing in Matthew 6, 23, he says, But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? 
The Greek word for bad here is poneros. It means evil or a bad nature or condition. The Greek word for darkness is skotinos, and it means full of darkness, covered with darkness. Again, using the eye as a metaphor, Jesus is saying that if our eye is evil or worthless, then it is an eye that is not fulfilling its natural function. This eye is like the gaze of the soul that is only looking toward the material earth. He is saying that if our eye is bad or evil, it is not looking straight and full at its object, which means it sees nothing as it is. This eye represents a mind and a heart that is divided between heaven and earth, and all is dark. For an insight into verse 23, where it says, How great is that darkness? I like what one commentary says on this matter. He says, Since the conscience is a regulative faculty, and a man's inward purpose, scope, aim in life determines his character, if these be not simple and heavenward, but distorted and double, what must all the other faculties and principles of our nature be, which take their direction and character from these? And what must the whole man and the whole life be but a mass of darkness? In, this con- in concluding this passage, Jesus gets to the heart of the issue in Matthew 6, 24, where he says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let's read what Matthew Henry so poignantly says on this matter. He says, you cannot serve God and mammon. So mammon is a Syriac word that signifies gain. So whatever in this world is or is accounted by us to be gain is mammon. Whatever is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life is mammon. To some, their belly is their mammon, and they serve that. To others, their ease, their sleep, their sports, and pastimes are their mammon. To others, worldly riches. To others, honors and preferments. The praise and applause of men was the Pharisees' mammon. In a word, self, the unity in which the world's trinity centers, sensual, secular self, is the mammon which cannot be served in conjunction with God. For if it be served, it is in competition with him and in contradiction to him. He does not say we must not or we should not, but we cannot serve God and mammon. We cannot love both or hold to both or hold by both in observance or obedience, attendance, trust, and dependence, for they are contrary one to the other. Thus inconsistent are the commands of God and mammon, so that we cannot serve both. Let us not then halt between God and Baal, but choose ye this day whom you will serve and abide in your choice. Choose you who you will serve today and abide in that choice. I want to end our discussion of the second litmus test with the reading of Proverbs 4, 18 and 25 through 27. It says, But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. Let's follow the path of righteousness with our eyes singularly focused to allow the light of dawn to illumine our whole being. Let's commit to the path that's straight with no wavering, but with undivided devotion. To discover our third and final litmus test, let's continue reading Matthew 6, 25 through 33. 
It says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith, therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. This brings us to our third litmus test. To maintain an undivided devotion, we have to pay attention to what makes us anxious. And we have to ask ourselves, am I seeking the kingdom of God first? The word, therefore, ties this section of Scripture to the preceding text in verse 24. Essentially, Jesus is saying that because of the impossibility of dividing your service between two masters, cease to be anxious about things of this life, because anxiety about these things is a mark of your attempting this impossibility. The Greek for the phrase, do not be anxious, is merimnaho. It means to not be troubled with cares, to take no thought. Scripture does not forbid us to be wise and plan ahead. In fact, it encourages us to. The thought here is that we are not to be anxious, which springs from an unbelieving doubt and misgivings in our lives. There's a difference between godly sense of responsibility and an ungodly, untrusting worry. However, an ungodly, untrusting sense of worry usually masquerades as responsibility. I've been guilty of that. We are to be concerned with the right things, the ultimate issues of life, and we are to leave the management and the worry over the material things with our Heavenly Father. In other words, and, and I'm in the business world, and a lot of times we like to have a phrase when we're trying to uh, execute something in the business world, but it's to keep the main thing the main thing. But that applies way more so in our spiritual lives than it does in the, in the business world. We are admonished by Paul in the same way in Philippians 4, 6. He says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. We are to be anxious for nothing. What is there in this life that can stand greater than Christ's love for us? My wife has a phrase that she likes to quote when we run into a circumstance that would tend to make us worried. She says, This is not worthy of worry. This is not worthy of worry. This is, in essence, what Jesus is saying in this passage. The very God that has seen fit to give us eternal life and place His Spirit inside of us will take care of the necessities of our lives. Do we really believe this this morning? In verses 26 through 31, Jesus goes on to turn our attention towards how well the created birds and vegetation are taken care of by the Father. This is a comparison of the greater to the lesser. He is saying, if God so takes care of the birds of the air, which are of less worth than us, 
since by the way only we are created in the image of God, then why worry? Your life is more value and you have eternal matters to pursue. The implication concerning the birds is that they have neither care for the past nor forethought for the future. And yet our Heavenly Father takes care of them. I'm thinking what a state to live in. That would be an amazing place to be daily. The implication concerning the birds is that they have neither, oh excuse me, who of us by worrying can even add a single hour to our lives? In fact, worry tends to create stress in our bodies, which in turn has deleterious effects on our bodies. Jesus continues on in these verses saying that the Gentiles or nations run after these things. They spend their time consumed with all these materialistic pursuits because what they have on earth is it. There is no future hope, but God tells us that we are living now for the future hope of eternity. And therefore, we are to let go of these earthly pursuits. We are to become unattached to this world. God already knows all that we need, and if he has given us the greater, that being our soul and spirit created in his image, then why will he not take care of the lesser, the things which supply to our basic necessities? Our final direction from Jesus in Matthew 6:33 exhorts us, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You see, if we turn our gaze to him and let go of the worries of this world system, we will, we will gain everything. God's kingdom is opposite to the kingdom of this world. It's the letting go that gains in the kingdom. Whereas the world says to strive and to clutch and to hang on to. The key is to seek first his kingdom, such as his kingdom should take preeminence in our lives. Again, I like how Matthew Henry puts it. Thoughtfulness about the world is a heathenish sin and unbecoming of Christians. The Gentiles seek these things because they know not better things. They are eager for this world because they are strangers to a better. They seek these things with care and anxiety because they are without God in the world and understand not his providence. They fear and worship their idols but know not how to trust them for deliverance and supply and therefore are themselves full of care. But it is a shame for Christians who build upon nobler principles and profess a religion which teaches them not only that there is a providence, but that there are promises made to the good of the life that now is, and which teaches them confidence in God and the contempt of the world, and gives such reasons for both. It is a shame for them to walk as Gentiles walk and to fill their heads and hearts with these things. In summary, this morning... It's like Jesus is saying, I have placed a rubber stamp on you that says world exempt. You understand that? It's like he's placed a rubber stamp on us and it says world exempt. You focus on me with undivided devotion and I will take care of all the necessities of your life. I will take care of you. You are free to serve me with no fear or anxious struggle. You are free to serve me with no distractions. Haven't I called you to live differently than the world? You are exempt from worrying. Trust in me. You be about my father's business. In closing today, I want to read to you a sobering passage found in 2 Peter 3, 10 through 12. 
beginning with verse 10, it says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth works, and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. I don't mean to deliver such a heavy message to you today, but I do mean to convey to you the seriousness of our walk on this earth. We are playing for keeps. We are playing for keeps. The enemy is very purposeful and very committed to his plan. We as followers should be very purpose, purposeful and committed to our God's plans. Our lives are truly a vapor. My prayer for all of us is that we live life with undivided devotion to our King. There may be some of you who are having a hard time fully devoting yourselves to the Lord. You may be distracted by the cares of this world, by the minutiae, confusion, and chaos of this world. You may be fearful of the lawlessness, the coldness, and brutality that you see sweeping our world on the news. You may not know which way is up or down some days. I want to encourage you that if you set your mind on the things above, everything will become abundantly clear and focused. I would like everyone to bow their heads. If any of you feel that this message is speaking directly to your life, if you feel that you are distracted by the cares of two kingdoms, trying to paddle in two opposite currents at the same time, or maybe you know that God has been nudging you and drawing you to a deeper focus and commitment to Him, then I want to ask you to raise your hand so that I can be praying for you. Yes. Amen. Yes. I'm not going to call you up as it's God who sees your heart. God knows where you're at. He knows where each and every one is this morning. Where you are in your walk, where you are in the things that distract you. He knows the things that trip you up. I'm going to ask that as I pray this closing prayer, that those of you who raise your hands pray in your hearts to the God who knows and loves you so deeply. Father, we love you and worship you this morning. We thank you that you care about every detail of our lives. You already know what makes us tick because you created every intricate detail of who we are. With this in mind, we know that you expect us to trust you. You expect us to walk in a manner of undivided devotion to your purposes. I pray that for each person here who raised their hands this morning, that you begin to show them in practical ways the areas of their lives that need to change, the areas of their lives that don't pass a litmus test for undivided devotion. By your grace, empower them to change, Father. This can only be accomplished by your Holy Spirit. I pray this in the strong and mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Again, it was an honor to speak with you this morning. I uh, told a few people, but 